Hi, this is The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. We're rereading all the Patrick O'Brien, Aubrey Matron novels one at a time. And this is our story of the HMS Surprise already in progress. That's right. Already in HMS Surprise, Jack and Stephen have found their way onto the aforesaid ship. They've made their way down the Atlantic to the coast of Brazil. They've dealt with scurvy. They've dealt with squalls and temporary desertion on a rock. Um, They've encountered bats and vampires and sloths. And they've managed to debauch one sloth on this journey already. They've managed just, just the one sloth this time. Only one casualty in the debauching scenario so far. Right. <laughs> and Mike, we've been talking a lot about this book as being the, the story of some of Stephen's ups and downs, maybe even the litany of his mistakes. His character's been front and center so far, hasn't it? It really has been. We, you know, we, we see Jack in, uh, in action. We've still been on land and on sea. But really, from the very beginning, following right through, the focus really seems to be on Stephen this time. We've even had Jack carried off to debtor's prison for a, for a while. And with Stephen, we've seen him evolving more deeply and more prominently into the world of intelligence. He has the role of giving advice to the envoy and his staff who are on their way out to Kampong in Malaya. And... Stephen's also been recovering from injuries that he sustained at the hands of the French at the very beginning of the book and seems to be regaining his powers, seems to be regaining his physical and his, uh, and his mental powers and feeling a bit more capable than he was maybe as we set off. No question about it. His, his physical prowess, his constitution, we talked about last time, Sir Joseph's observation, that he really is pushing himself, pushing himself, and after this ordeal on the rock, seems to be back, seems to be his old self again. I think we did not do the the scene of him presenting himself back to the envoy in his birthday suit, but that classic Stephen in rare form. <laughs> Absolutely. He's not super friends with all the envoy's party. I think we're seeing the stirrings of a bit of animosity between Stephen and Atkins, the envoy secretary, although to be honest, Atkins seems to be getting on everybody's nerves. So Stephen's not alone there. For sure. Right For at sure. the end. Yeah, yeah. And right at the end of our last episode, Stephen also seemed to be incurring the wrath of the crew, speaking lightly about albatrosses and speaking lightly about them as harbingers of something of a Southern Ocean storm. Yeah, Jack has said multiple times throughout the canon, even so far, you know, in the Navy, you just don't go against custom. You know, you, you don't yeah. you, know, you do things the way you do things. And this albatross issue with Stephen asking Jack to ask the crew or to tell the crew not to be fishing for albatrosses. Everybody says this is, you know, going against custom, especially albatrosses in this, you know, in these southern latitudes really could be gloom and doom. We could be in for a, a, a pretty big storm here. We are. And we're in for a big storm because we're in the Southern Ocean. And we're going to get into the geography of the Patrick O'Brien tales a, a little more deeply. And later on in this week's episode, we're going to have a conversation with our good friend, Tom Horn, who runs the Cannonade.net mapping project and talk about his, what seems like his life's work, his great internet project in mapping and charting all of the voyages of Stephen and Jack. So that's all to come. What I love, and I think I had forgotten on Tom's website, is you know this ability not only to see where the ship is, but to see where 
you know, important things, any anything that O'Brien had happen that has a reference to location is in there too. So when, you know, Stephen is teaching Bondin how to write and, and now how to write verse, uh, and Bondin graduates and can throw his slate overboard and go to pen and ink, um, we've got that right on Tom's map there. <laughs> you see exactly where yeah, that's that is. Right. So when last we left our heroes, these rumors and discussions and, uh, you know, not very happy people with storms. In fact, we're coming right on to a blow. And Jack, who, you know, we've seen in past books, uh, getting ready to go into action against the enemy is so excited. Uh, We've got that same kind of look on Jack's face now as this big storm seems to be coming up. That's right. Jack loves a blow. He says that many, many times. Um, And there's the biggest blow, I think, coming that we've encountered in the books so far. If you look at where they are in the world, they're in the Roaring Forties. So as I look at the Canonade.net website, in 42 degrees south, they're heading kind of southeast. They're in the Roaring Forties. They're getting into those southern latitudes where the winds get really, really strong. And in 45 degrees south, you know, there's a big kink in their course as they direct themselves directly east, scudding in front of the westerlies. But for Jack, this is just champagne sailing. He's got everything, every stitch he can spread is abroad. He's got his studding sails, he's got his top sails, he's got his top gallants. Even the uh, experienced non-commissioned officers of the ship's company say he's, he's showboating a little bit here. This is cracking on, said one of them, Jolliffe. It'll be cracking off presently, said Church, if he don't take in. So for a glass and more, it says, the watch on deck had been waiting for the order to lay aloft and reduce sail before the Lord himself reduced it, yet the order still didn't come. And Jack wanted every last mile. He goes on to talk about the shrill song of the rigging. HMS Surprise has this noble running lift and plunge, a vivid ecstasy that shone upon Jack's face although his behaviour was reserved and taut and even severe. And you can get this sense, can't you, that Jack's becoming very, very close with the ship. He really loves the fact that he knows just how to test her to the limit of her powers. And for now, the conditions are great. It's super windy, but they're making progress and they're under control and Surprise is just stretching her legs. Yeah, and O'Brien talks about Jack. He's on the quarterdeck, but at the same time, He's right there in, you know, in every sail, in every rigging, gauging their breaking point. It's, you know, fabulous. And what's interesting to me is I, I love the writing that O'Brien gives us about the Southern Ocean because of all the aspects of sailing that O'Brien may or may not have experienced at first hand. I'm pretty darn sure he didn't sail in the Southern Ocean. I'm pretty <laughs> darn sure he didn't sail very many places. But I'm pretty darn sure he didn't sail in the Southern Ocean. But he's enjoying writing about it as, as if he had. And I bet that he might have read some of the other authorities on a blue water sailing in circumnavigations. There's great writing out there about high southern latitudes. And I, I guess, I hope, I expect that Patrick O'Brien probably enjoyed some of it. Joshua Slocum, who wrote Sailing Alone Around the World, which was... Published in 1900. Thank you. Which was published in 1900, was one of the most famous early books about really severe weather in a really small boat sailing around the world. And since then, since sailing around the world has become an adventurer's exploit rather than a commercial challenge for for tea crippers and the like, we've had books by yachtsmen like Robin Knox Johnson and Francis Chichester, but also Eric Newby's book, The Last Grain Race, 
which I would recommend to anybody as a book about going to sea, albeit in a very different context from the Napoleonic Navy, has a lot in there about the the real stark severity of the weather and the conditions sailing in the Southern Ocean. Because, of course, that far south, there are no land masses to break up the the sweep of wind and water just basically circling around the globe endlessly. And it's a part of the world that's you know a unique experience for sailors. And I love the evolution of the storm. I love the way that Patrick O'Brien talks about the ship's response to it. And again, the ship, HMS Surprise herself, is becoming a character in the passage. Jack refers to her at one point as the bravest ship that ever swam. And the evolution of the storm is told quite carefully and gradually. And again, you can see on the map, when the weather is good, they're heading southeast. And then when the storm hits, they bear away dead east directly before this westerly wind. Yeah, the, the description is so vivid. And I just found the the narration, the action here, you know, almost terrifying at times. And certainly as uh, as violent, as compelling as any battle scene uh, that we've read in the canon. Definitely. And he certainly devotes the same amount of writerly attention and description to it that he's devoted to his, his, his military action scenes as well. Now, for Jack, this is familiar but challenging territory. And I guess for most of the professional sailors on, the, on HMS Surprise, this is also familiar but challenging. For Stephen, this is new and scary. And for the envoy and his party, this is new and scary. And I think a few people start to uh, start to haze a few of the land lovers <laughs> aboard, telling them just how grave, just how grave the situation is. So, so Stephen, as you as you say, and Stephen has not been in this kind of storm before, and he's down in the gun room, um, and he's you know he hears the officers have been on deck, you know, all day, all night, and you know he asks, "Are we in extreme peril?" Then asks Stephen. Oh yes, they assured him with grave, anxious faces. They were in horrid danger of foundering, broaching too, running violently into Australia. But there was a hope, just <laughs> a very slight hope, of their meeting with a mountain of ice and clambering onto it. As many as half a dozen men might be saved. <laughs> you can almost hear them pulling long faces and lugubrious voices, trying to wind Stephen up with the idea of the right. <laughs> and. And the envoy and his party are worried as well about this this idea of being pooped. Um, I've heard somebody describe the business of sailing a sailing ship before a strong wind and before a really, really big sea as being like sitting in a shopping trolley going downhill. And with wow. <laughs> in, in, in that if you can keep going downhill, if you can keep pointed away from the waves and away from the wind, then it's exhilarating, but you're okay. But if at any point your balance gets changed and you start to do anything other than pointing directly downhill, then life gets uncomfortable very, very quickly. And they're worried about being pooped. They're worried about, and O'Brien, I think, explains this really well. They're worried about the back of the boat getting caught by a wave and knocking the boat even slightly off course because then the next wave pushes the boat even further around sideways onto the waves. And at that point, the boat gets unstable and rolls. And that's that's the end if you end up in that mm. situation. It's called broaching. Wow. So it's obviously a danger that Jack and the crew are aware of and all of their sailing tactics are taking them in that direction. As long as the sea stays in one direction and the wind is in the same direction, then they're going to be okay. But 
this also gives a chance, as we say, for the crew to pull the legs a little bit of the people on board who've never done this kind of sailing before. But Mike, we've talked about running violently into Australia and we're in the 40s, so Australia is pretty much dead east from the crew of the Surprise where they are. Um, that reminds me that we, we might take this moment to run into Australia ourselves a little bit. We, we did have the great good fortune to, uh, to run into Australia and our friend Tom Horn. That's right. So we're going to take a break now. We're going to listen to an interview that we had a couple of weeks ago with Tom Horn, who runs the Cannonade.net mapping project. And we think you're going to really enjoy this. So it's great to welcome to the podcast our guest today, Tom Horn. Tom is based in Sydney in Australia, and in addition to being a fan of the books, he's the author of the Patrick O'Brien Mapping Project. This is a project that literally charts the progress of Stephen and Jack, representing the locations and the voyage tracks. Some of them are real and some of them are estimated of the action from all 21 of the books. The project has been evolving on Tom's website, canonade.net, for 14 years. And a happy coincidence was that we discovered just as we kicked off this podcast that Tom was just wrapping up this enormous project. He finished the mapping for volume 21, the final unfinished voyage of Jack Aubrey, I think just a few weeks ago. And Tom is with us today. Welcome, Tom. Uh, Thanks very much. Welcome to the show. So, Tom, tell us a bit about how you first got started with the Patrick O'Brien books and how that led into the mapping project. Um, well, I guess uh, it started with uh, the, the, the Pat, uh, Patrick Crow uh, movie, um, I guess mm-hmm. around 2004 or 2005. Um, I hadn't heard of the books or knew nothing about them, and I, uh, I, I, I loved the movie and, and immediately dived into the series and uh, I think consumed all, all 21 quite quickly. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> they're so fantastic. And then around the same time, um, Google had just released, I think 2005, Google released their first sort of Google Maps on the web product. Um, and, and not long after they released that, they, they opened it up to developers to be able to put the Google Maps on, on their own websites. And, and when I saw that, uh, it occurred to me that that might, might be a good platform to show the, the voyages uh, of Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin. And, and mm. there hadn't been that much on the internet at the time. There was lots of discussion and, and some hand-drawn maps, and, but, I, but I thought it would be interesting to dive in and having no idea how big a project this would be, um, I, I got started. <laughs> Tom, when we think about it, I know for me coming to the Brooks, you know, there was a lot of material on the technical side of sailing and navigation that's covered there pretty in depth. I can't imagine, you know, what kind of challenge it must have been to dig into all that with this now new mapping technology. And and as I understand it, you know, for someone like you who, who's not really into sailing that much or wasn't at that moment. Yeah, I mean, it was... Um, uh, I think I was completely naive at the time as to what it would involve because the text refers to latitudes and longitudes occasionally and you think that's a great starting point. Um, so I, I started off just creating some tools so I could, you know, draw lines on the map um, and then and then get access to the latitude and longitude data from that. Uh, I, I needed tools to, to measure distances because uh, there'd be a reference to a, a point 
some number of leagues off and it took me a while to realize leagues and nautical miles and miles were all different things. Uh, mm-hmm. So I had to had to do that sort of conversion and, um, and, and yeah, and also this idea that sometimes sometimes the ships would be traveling in a certain direction. Um, and I sort of remember this realization perhaps in sympathy with Dr. Matcher and that the process of beating into the wind sometimes involved the ship sailing in a direction almost not quite contrary to the destination. So all of those things uh, it took a while for my, me to get my head around as the complete lubber that I am. Um, but, but yeah, I was able to build some tools and, and it was an iterative process as I worked my way through. Wow, very painstaking. Was, was there enough in the books to let you build up a picture or did you need to look outside of the text to get some clues? So first of all, I guess early on, um, I had uh, quite a bit of help. There's a a mailing list on the internet called The Gun Room and there's some uh, lovely people who've been been on that list for, I think, since the very early days of the the internet. And and I would uh, often frequent their list asking questions about dog watches and south by east or half east and uh, and things like that and uh as i progressed i guess um and they they were really helpful and they'd had a lot of these conversations going back many years so there'd been lots of analysis on the location of of jack's cottage for instance or 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 um shelmiston or other places so that was really helpful and there was also you know there was the specific latitude and longitude references in the book which are a great starting point for any any yeah. sort of reference um i love a good solid noon observation um yeah, that, uh, <laughs> yeah that that was great and then the and as i said there's sort of references to specific land landmarks and and distance to the landmarks and that was good and then from those two sort of things it's it was became a process of almost dead reckoning where you try and work forward in in t- speed and time uh, which is why I was sort of interested in how, you know, what time this happened with a refer- refer- reference to two bells or or, or something okay. like that. And there was some of the some of the locations in the books are based on real historical actions, and that was that was great because I could reach out to museums and libraries and 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 get hold of of maps, and and that was a really fun part of the project actually. Uh, uh, getting uh, getting those sort of real historical context. Uh, type locations and, and sticking those in the project as well gosh how difficult was it to get that kind of source material i i mean people are lovely is the answer i guess yeah. that you you reach out and say i'm working on this crazy thing and uh, and is it okay if i use this uh, 1804 map that you have on your library website and and people are really helpful and send you extra stuff and and descriptions and it was really really great so uh, that that was quite fun Nice. What do you do, Tom, with locations, the fictional locations? You think that maybe, you know, based on real places. How do you how do you go about placing an invented location on a map of the real world? Yeah, that I mean that was really tricky and I think uh, at the beginning, I mean I would I would go really deep to try and really pin something down and and I'd stare at uh, little sections of coastline and reread this particular paragraph in the book to try and figure out uh, exactly where it is, and 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 sometimes I would get that quite wrong, especially early on, where because sometimes locations, uh, Petri Reminded, 
add more and more references. Shelmerston's the perfect example. And I think I got Shelmerston quite wrong early on. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was only in later refer- volumes with more references that I that I sort of got closer to where I think it probably is. Sometimes the problem was the name of the place would be, I remember one, the name of the place was just a, a translation of village in that in the local language. And so there'd be, you'd look up that place and you'd find all this stuff. And, and it took me a while to realise, <laughs> oh, okay, no, that's just the word for village. I, uh, so so that was kind of, and, and eventually I'd get to the point where it sort of, uh, the 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 action around whatever it was would be enough to get it vaguely somewhere on the North African coast between this point and this point. So eventually, I think on the map, I I would just put little gaps in the in the course line with a question mark yeah. saying it was somewhere around here, and that was that was good enough. Gosh, and I guess it must have helped that O'Brien's research and use of sources goes really deep. The did you come across any um, examples of moments where he got it a little wrong or missed something out from what's in the real world? Yeah, I mean, there there, there are a couple of examples where, uh, I mean, in today, it'd be interesting today with access to this infinitely, almost infinitely zoomable uh, map of the world, how Patrick O'Brien would, would deal with it. Uh, but he did do an incredible amount of research. And, you know, he'd, uh, the, the one that, really jumps out to me uh, is a couple of times that uh, Stephen and Jack visit Sydney Cove, uh, which is close to my heart. Yeah. Uh, he refers to lots of places so he, that are quite detailed. So he obviously had a pretty good idea of the geography, but he may have never come here or or perhaps um, when Stephen travels north of, of Sydney uh, on his, on his sort of botanising tour and yeah. has his encounter with the platypus, <laughs> he yeah. travels up the coast and and there's quite a, a large bay right north of Sydney that is not mentioned. Uh, so that, that was quite a funny, funny one. He mustn't mustn't have been looking directly at a map when he wrote when he wrote those sections. <laughs> but usually he was pretty good. <laughs> but staying on this project, Tom, for for over 14 years, suggests that you know either maybe you're a little patient, very patient, maybe very motivated, <laughs> maybe both or, or more. So what what kept you going? Um, I, I think uh, a little bit of OCD and uh, a bit of completionist, <laughs> I suppose. But uh, I mean, a lot of it was just lovely feedback from people, and and that's really what kept kept me going. I, there was a point there where I was doing about a book a year, and it was the occasional email or, or message I'd get online uh, saying that they 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 enjoyed it and and that how much they loved the books, and and having these conversations with people about these amazing books that really made it worthwhile and and so satisfying to each time I finished a book I'd post it somewhere and and people had people had given me great feedback so it was it was really the the community around these books that that made it made it just totally totally motivating and and worth and worth finishing and it was it was yeah really satisfying to finish all 21 books uh, that's wonderful and you know t- take a bow i think for the for the tenacity <laughs> and the perseverance <laughs> of getting all the way through it it's a brilliant brilliant piece of work so starting out needing to look up what what a league was and having now immersed yourself in all of this nauticalia and navigation and seamanship have, have you ever been to sea in a boat <laughs> in a small boat with sails <laughs> not really i mean uh, ferries and and uh some some dabbling around in boats as a teenager, but I'm incredibly lovely and and not not at all a seaman. Uh, yeah, but I, I 
one thing that I remember. So in Sydney, we have a replica of, of the ship, the HMS, sorry, HMB Endeavour that James Cook and Joseph Banks sailed to the South Pacific um, to, amongst other things, record the transit of Venus and seek evidence of the postulated undiscovered southern land. Um, And I remember stepping aboard this beautiful replica ship that was built in the 90s and looking up at the masts and the rigging and spars and just having this uh, sort of visceral emotional response Um, because sort of having spent uh, so much time imagining these scenes in my head, the, the sort of physical track, trappings of a real tall ship were breathtaking. Um, I think mm-hmm. it's funny, your your interview with Karen um, a couple of episodes ago, she described her reaction to finding guests sitting by the fire and sipping tea uh, and yeah. eating a Georgian breakfast. So it sort of really reminded me of that feeling. It's sort of, um, yeah. So, uh, and that, that the Endeavour does cruises along the coast. I'd love, I'd love to do that one day. I think it'd be fantastic. Oh yeah. Fantastic. Perhaps not this time of year. Spring, no, spring no perhaps not. <laughs> Speaking of fantastic time, it's, it's not like these, you know, this map and these maps tied to the stories are all that you've done. I mean, your website itself is amazing. Can you tell us a little bit more about what else is out there and, and maybe what's next, what's coming up for you? Um, yeah, I think probably the most fun diversion from this project, uh, which I, I used the same technology for, was uh, the, the book The Martian that was also made into a film a few years ago. I read at the time and, and thought that Google does a version of the of the Maps platform for Mars. And so I, I used the same technology for that. So that was that was quite fun, creating a map of that book on the surface of Mars. Um, and I'm sort of I'm a bit of a history buff, so uh, doing stuff with... World War II and the American Civil War and 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 mapping those wars and in time and space is a sort of a fun project that I've worked on kind of in parallel with the Patrick O'Brien project. So I might do more of that. I I mean I, I just finished a, a screensaver that uses the Patrick O'Brien data and that was that was a really fun project but while we're all in locked lockdown and got it. It's awesome. It's it's beautiful. Congratulations, man. <laughs> it's a lovely piece of work. Oh thank you. Um yeah, so that was that was fun. I I'm not sure what I'll do next. I there is more I can do on my history project. So I've I've only I really I did World War Two and World War One and the American Civil War, but I, I'd like to get into the Napoleonic Wars as well. I think I think there'd be lots of lots of interesting yeah. digging digging in geography and time for that complex. So may, maybe that I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well. It's funny, just a few hours ago, Mike and I were talking about the Sharp novels set mostly in the Peninsula Wars in 18, sort of 10, 15. So maybe there's something there. Good yeah, that, I, have, that, I have thought of that in the past. That, that, might be, that might be fun. I mean, there are other books like uh, that, that I could go down. I'm a little bit gun shy, perhaps, after finishing yeah. this massive project. Yeah. But, 14 uh, years from one series. Know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Excellent. Remind us all, Tom, how can we find the mapping project? And is there any other way that listeners can keep track of you on social media? Um, yep. Probably uh, probably the easiest way is to Google Patrick O'Brien map. I think I should be the first result there. Or uh, go direct to the website, which is canonade.net. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter at Red Blue Thing. Yeah, so that's that's my most of my internet presence. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. Well, Tom, it's been really, really great to have you with us. Thank you so much. First of all, thank you again for all the work on the mapping project. It's, I know it was a, a great thing for me to enjoy as I was reading the books and exploring and kind of geeking out on the background to them. And I know that you've brought a lot of really 
profound interest and pleasure for loads of people who've read the book. So congratulations and thanks. Good luck with whatever comes next. And uh, thanks once again for joining us on the show. Oh, thanks very much. That's lovely. So we do encourage you, if you have an opportunity, if you haven't been to Tom's site, www.cannonade.net, and you can follow along on the journeys in any of the books. But if you're on Surprise, you can find out, as Ian said earlier, exactly where they came into a blow. You can see the possible courses to Bombay and find fascinating events that have happened during the book any time that there's a geographical location or any kind of proximity of where this happened, Tom's got it on the map there. He certainly has. So while you all take a look at canonade.net and look up the coordinates, we're going to go and pour a glass of rum and we'll be back with you right after this short break. So welcome back to the Lubbers Hole. Mike and the Sloth have been uh, getting deeply into the cake and the rum over on the other side of the pond. And we're back with you. Um, Before we had our conversation with Tom and before we took a break, we were on board the Surprise in a building storm. And already the non-sailors aboard were getting worried that this was a dangerous situation. And as the story evolves, we hear, don't we, that the weather's, if anything, going to get worse. We do. I mean, at one point, Jack goes down, uh, Stephen gets him to say, we've got one of your shipmates here, you know, one of your crew members who's dying of pneumonia. If you're going to say a few last words to him, now's the time. And just in the short time that Jack goes down and comes back up, the sea is, is just gone crazy here. That's right. And we said before that if the sea and the wind are all behind, all from behind, then life is exciting but life is controllable. But now we have a cross sea and it's sort of presaged early on. We had an earlier conversation in the gun room where one of the officers says, the four top mast is under strain, but as long as we don't roll, it's all going to be okay. Now we have a cross sea sitting in and guess what? The surprise is starting to roll. And Jack is on deck constantly at this point. We get this language and description from Patrick O'Brien of just unremitting wind and waves and darkness and howling blackness and devastating weather conditions and Jack is there right with his ship and right with his crew and as you can tell that we've been building up to to something bad happening something bad does happen in the text it says the foremast but I've got a feeling it was the foretop mast Ah, because they managed to set a forestaysail in a, in a few moments' time, which I think tells me that they must have had at least the lower section of the foremast. But anyhow, the four top mast, the top half of the front mast of the ship, with a bang, is gone. And we have this minute-by-minute disaster, life-and-death situation. The surprise is about to get broached to. The surprise is about to present her side to the waves. The surprise goes into a lull between waves. And in this moment, this is the one instant where the surprise can still be rescued. Jack and a party of hands have got to get forward. They've got to get some kind of sail on her. They even talk about getting hands into the rigging because the pressure of the wind on the sailors' backs in the rigging will help the the boat's bows downwind. And they, with desperate tension and desperate resolve, 
managed to cut away the wreckage of the wrecked fore topmast and all of the wrecked ropes and shrouds and stays that are there, and they managed to get a scrap of fore staysail up, and just in the nick of time, just in the nick of time, with our hero Jack Aubrey right in the thick of it, we had just enough way on the ship to start to steer downwind. We have, I think it's four men, four men manning the wheel at this point to keep this ship pointed downwind, navigating through this terrible cross sea, and just about, just about still swimming. Yeah, as this catastrophe is just starting, Jack is calling for all hands. And I think it really brought it to life to me. When Jack calls all hands, O'Brien writes, his voice tearing blood from his throat. You know, the way he's screaming out to everybody and orchestrating, you know, what needs to be done as these waves are crashing them, this immense, intense pressure crashing over them, and everybody kind of looking out for each other, looking out for what needs to be done, looking out for the rigging in the the mass, you know, the pieces. I, I just can't imagine all of this in freezing wet weather, having been up for a couple of days trying to you know navigate minute to minute through this. Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a different kind of endurance oh. and a different kind of physical challenge from things that most of us encounter these days. And it must be having a a cohering effect on the crew as well. It was interesting that O'Brien had written as they were coasting down Brazil that when they touched ashore in Brazil, he noted with approval that the crew of the Surprise had encountered the crew of another frigate ashore. And when they had had a fight, as sailors do, the crew of the Surprise had fought as a body, as one cohesive group, but not as the two or three sets of stragglers from other ships that they had been perhaps when when they set off. And now at last, maybe the crew is united enough and cohesive enough to endure this and to surmount the physical challenge and to stay close to Jack and the officers as they try and keep the ship going, even though she's making water, even though she's had a lot of physical damage, even though, as we said, they've lost the fourth topmast, they're still swimming. And of course, we, we know what the seamen expect as, as a reward for great, great service and enduring great hardship. And we get this at the end of the chapter, the final words from Jack as, as the scene becomes calm again. Yeah, dismiss the watch below, grog for all hands, serve it out in the half deck, pass the word for the bosun. <laughs> I'm going to get a t-shirt that says, grog for all hands, pass the word for the bosun. <laughs> I love that too. Oh my gosh. You know, this this whole scene above deck is is terrifying. It's intense. It's engaging. Yeah. And in, in the meantime, just a little before this, you know, Stephen had been called to the envoy's quarters and you've got all these guys sitting on sofas and chests with their legs up because there's water, their spirit lamps won't work, all their, uh, you know. Oh, yeah, the cha- their chamber pots are all broken. One of them one of them gives that as his parting fling. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah. another thing, all of right. their chamber pots are broken. So it's one thing to be cold and wet. It's one thing to be seasick. It's another thing. To having your own filth swirling about your ankles. <laughs> exactly. And and what they want to know from Stephen is, could you please tell us, is is this the end? Is this right? Does the captain realise that it's very cold at sea? Right. Did they realise that they've sent the, His Majesty's envoy to sea in a ship that leaks? Right. This is quite outrageous. Well, and I love Atkins, you know, has a, has a list of complaints he wants Stephen to pass along to uh, to Captain Jack and uh, and. Matron, in, in his own way, says, well, he's right upstairs on the quarter deck. I'm sure he'd be delighted for yep. you to come talk to him. <laughs> Go right ahead. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> After you, sir. I don't think we've heard the last of Stanhope and his team. I think that once uh, once they get closer to where they're going, they're going to cause some trouble because there's clearly no great love on their part for 
the surprise or for Jack and especially not for Stephen. I think we've already heard in the text that Atkins is thinking that maybe he might choose to quarrel with Stephen Maturin when he gets to Bombay. And we all know that that might be a best of 50-50 proposition for Atkins, but he's clearly already thinking that he wants to set his own stall out. Well, Ian, while we're at the point of grog for all hands served out on the half deck, um, let's pass the word pass the word for our fans. I think that uh, it's a great time to say thank you for all of you who have been listening, for all of you who have been giving us feedback uh, via Twitter, via uh, Facebook, and and uh, via the podcast apps that you're using, Apple Podcasts. Ian, could you share uh, with our listeners some of the feedback we've been getting? We really, really appreciate this. Um, quite a few of you listen to us via the um, iTunes uh, Apple Podcast app. Um, we've had some nice feedback saying this is great, good chemistry, nice and in-depth, using it as a refresher between books to recap. And that's the kind of idea that we had at first, that maybe people who love the books in the same way that we do might like to use this podcast as a way of keeping along with the, with the flow of the story. Two engaging presenters and a great podcast. Thank you very much. That's really, really nice to hear. Do check out the Aubrey Maturin Appreciation Society on Facebook, says Outlander YT on the Apple app. So thank you for that. We have been, we're both posting on the Aubrey Maturin Appreciation Society on Facebook. Um, If you're listening to this and you're not already there, check it out. There's a great bunch of people and a really, really broad-based discussion. Similarly, we've had some nice feedback from a couple of the members of the Gun Room of HMS Surprise, which is a list server um, and email discussion group that also posts an archive online at hmssurprise.org. And they've been great as well. Super supportive and really, really helpful. Um, our podcast is hosted by Podbean. So on the Podbean website, we also get to hear some posts from people who've enjoyed um, and a couple of people saying nice things. Um, two mature guys. Oh, well, mature, that's pretty neat, can be. Two, two <laughs> mature guys. Intelligent, <laughs> one of them also. Yeah, we'll let the readers discuss that. Um, two mature guys intelligently discussing my favourite books, What's not to like? Well, thank you very much, Chris. That was really, really nice of you to say, and we're really enjoying it. And it means a lot to to know that people out there are are enjoying it. Please keep telling us what you like. Tell us as well what you'd like to hear more of. A couple of you gave us some pointers that maybe we could be more contemporary with our cover art, so we've done some work there. Um, A couple of you have said that you like the theme music, and a couple of you have also said, Hmm, maybe we could get something that's even more in keeping with Jack and Stephen's favourites. So we're working on that. Listen out yes. in the next couple of weeks for some new ideas on theme music. So once again, Mike, it's just nice, isn't it, to hear from the people around the world. We've got listeners in um, the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, Ireland, around Europe, around the world. So wherever you are, we hope that you're safe and well, and we hope that you're continuing to enjoy these books with us as we read them along. A glass of wine with each and every one of you. Glass of wine, indeed. The bottle stands by you. There you go. So, Mike, as the book continues, they've, t- to use a lovely phrase, they turned left at the Cape of Good Hope. <laughs> right. <laughs> and O'Brien o- o- spares us more of the Roaring Forties. We've had we've had a bellyful, I think, of the Roaring Forties, and the, the next chapter opens basically saying, "Peace has come. Peace." And we're at the height of Mauritius. We're halfway up the Indian Ocean. And we're in the tropics and the air is still and the sea is calm or at least calmer and the sun is shining and life is a little bit more easy again for the surprise. Even though she needs a refit, even though she's got a leak or two here and there and even even though there are some pieces of uh, 
pieces of repair work that are needed once she gets to Bombay, they're all okay. Well, it's fascinating. The the crew who had been so panicked going through so much uh, in, in the Southern Ocean there, now everybody is out on deck. It's smooth sailing. This is better than the, the you know the, the best post chase on land even the envoy and his crew love it Stephen loves it and uh, and Jack can't stop worrying about the fact that they have used up all their supplies they just don't have anything and he, apparently he's talking about you know being desperately short of, of these spare parts constantly and Stephen can't yeah. take them any longer Stephen says, Captain Aubrey, your butt ends and your hanging knees cannot be attempted to be rectified, as I understand you, until you have her docked 3,000 miles away. So may I beg you to clap a stopper over all and to accept the inevitable with a decent appearance of unconcern? If we fall apart, why we (laughs) fall apart and there's an end to it. For my part, I have every confidence of reaching Bombay. And, uh, I just love, uh, and you know, Jack comes back at him saying, yes, but you know, we don't have yeah. this. We don't have this. And Stephen says, you know, of course I know it. You've mentioned them daily these last 200 leagues together with your hanging ends and your double sister blocks and nightly two prattin' in your sleep. Bow, bow to predestination or at least confine yourself to silent prayer. Stephen, <laughs> my man. You can almost hear that's like that's Stephen Maturin's Irish mother. <laughs> oh, I, I just I wish I could do the Irish brogue. I love it. I hear it in my ears. <laughs> and at one point, Stephen says, "God set a flower upon your head," which is which is an Irish uh, Irish toast for luck, isn't it? Right, a nice blessing there for him. <laughs> and it's an interesting little um, exchange of philosophy between them because in so many things, Jack is fatalistic. Right. But but he chooses to be quite anxious about things that he thinks that he controls, including the fate of the ship and the sailing and the seamanship. And Stephen, on the other hand, chooses to be quite fatalistic about just trusting Jack. And we're, we're going to hear this again and again in the books. Anytime that there's danger and Jack is going, well, aren't you afraid? And Stephen's going, no, I'm I'm with you and I'm with the crew and I'm with right. the ship. And every time we've had a problem before, it's going to be fine. So Stephen's schooling Jack a bit in stoicism. He's saying, yeah. What will be will be. This too will pass. You know, chill. And there is that beautiful flip side because you know, it doesn't matter if somebody's drowned, if the gunner's got to take his, you know, have his brains taken out. Jack and the crew are going, oh, well, just give it to yeah. Stephen. No problem. <laughs> oh, he's pulled up, drowned, dead. No problem. Give it to Stephen. He'll fix it. Tide hasn't turned yet. <laughs> <laughs> so they're, they're both very, very trusting in each other. And this is some, it's a great token of the friendship that O'Brien's writing for them both. Yeah. That in their own domain, they trust each other. And that Stephen is educating Jack, I think, that you know, you, I've got a friend who's good at this and I'm going to make my life easier by just setting all my concerns to one side and I'll go, okay, the, the, the seaman on board will take care of this and that will be fine. And if you could be a little bit as stoic as me, then you might be easier company for a while. For sure. <laughs> I think if there's, if there's one thing where Stephen's mind is not at rest and where he's not within reach of stoicism it's him reflecting on the fact that you know every day takes them about 200 miles closer to bombay and to the idea that diana villiers is there and all the way through the book this has been foreshadowed that stephen's trying to get back to her 
I think when last we saw them together, if you will, at the you know, they're not even together, but at the opera box at the end of Post Captain, that you've got, or, or no, I guess maybe that was the beginning beginning of surprise here, that Stephen was sort of done with her, and now as he yeah. gets closer and closer to Bombay, you know, she is more and more on his mind, and this for folks who think you know of. O'Brien and the Aubrey Matron series as just this naval fiction, you know, ship actions. I mean, this is some of the writing that really gets to me where you have mm. Stephen really reflecting so deeply here. It, it's such a tremendously long passage. I, I, I can't do it justice to read all of it, but, you know, just the depth of his thinking. He's thinking about Diana. He's thinking about how she's treated him. He's thinking about the good things about her and her catalog of defects. And he says, but moral considerations were irrelevant to Diana. In her physical grace and dash took the place of virtue. The whole context was so different that an unchastity, odious in another woman, had what he could only call a purity in her. Another purity, pagan, obviously, a purity from another code altogether. He's he's sitting there thinking about this. Again, he goes back and forth a little bit, but then it, you know, O'Brien tells us this at least was his tentative conclusion, and he had traveled these eight thousand miles with a continually mounting desire to see her again, and with an increasing dread of the event. Desire exceeding dread, of course, but Lord, the infinite possibilities of self-deception, the difficulty of <laughs> disentangling the countless strands of emotion and calling each by its proper name of separating business from pleasure. And you know, this, this kind of reflection, I mean, you know, O'Brien, I think I posted a quote here in the last week or so about O'Brien talking about he writes about the human condition and he writes about us and our interactions with each other. And this, you know, this whole passage, even the greater part of, of what I just read there, so much that. Um, and, and so you've got this deep, you know, churning with Stephen thinking about Diana. And then, you know, right ends up says at times, whatever he might say, he was surely lost in a cloud of unknowing, but at least it was a peaceful cloud at present. And sailing through a milky sea towards a possible, though unlikely, ecstasy at an indefinite remove was, if not the fullness of life, then something like its shadow. Wow. It's really powerful writing, isn't it? Oh, my. This is reminding me a bit of the conversation we had with um, Jeremy a couple of episodes ago. We were talking about how, from a 1960s psychology, sociology perspective, Patrick O'Brien's looking at human beings as, you know, almost like actors in a behavioral experiment. And this was in vogue in the 60s, the idea of observing people and the idea of you know, anthropology of modern day life. Right. And th- there's an echo of that, I think, in O'Brien writing about how Stevens tried to disentangle his feelings and give each its proper name, be, be philosophical about them the taxonomy of all the different things that he encounters, separating business from pleasure, separating raw attraction from personal affection. This is really deep stuff, but also very 1960s stuff. It is. I think that, you know, the, the heart has reason that the, you know, the, it's, it's that 
stuff that is timeless. And so as we, yeah. you know, as we roll ourselves back to the 1800s, we discover ourselves from last week and next week. And again, he's, he's using visual language. He's talking about lost in a cloud of unknowing, a peaceful cloud sailing through a milky sea. He's, he's placing Stephen's relative confusion and the obscurity of what his motions all really mean in the language of you know, na- navigating at, at sea. Yes. So visually, Stephen is, is a little bit lost and a little bit blinded and reality is a bit obscure from him. And I, just very briefly... Fast forwarding for a second to us being on shore in Bombay and the description of Bombay as Stephen begins to explore shoreside in Bombay. Um, Smell is mentioned many times, but lots and lots of visual description, the visual description of the people and the air and the light. And we have this parade of religious festival, uh, animals and people and ceremony and smoke and incense and noise and elephants, including elephants ridden by or carrying along with sailors from British ships. And the really piercing moment that this is all kind of collapsed into one reality is when Stephen, sitting on a mound, realises that he's looking at the parade, he's looking at the festival, he's beholding the elephants. But this particular elephant that he's looking at has some Europeans sitting under a canopy on top, and one of the Europeans that he's staring straight into is Diana Villiers. Yeah, this is we you know we're we're about to get there and and this is kind of a culmination of one of the parts of this journey certainly um the next huge step in where we've been leading the Stephen Matron story all through surprise here. I kind of wondered, you know, right before they get to shore, uh Stephen is sitting in the back of the ship. He's sitting back there where he can, you know, basically be right at sea level, right behind it. And he's got a net and he's fishing for a sea serpent, another one of his natural philosophy. Yeah. You know, I really want to get one of these beautiful, incredible, exotic looking things. And as he's fishing for this, Pullings, who we love, Lieutenant <laughs> Pullings, yeah. uh, sees him and is terrified. He's just like, oh my gosh, don't touch her pulling says she's deadly poison she is deadly poison i point out yeah i seen a man die in 20 minutes you know and <laughs> so i'm thinking uh-oh we've just been thinking about diana now steven's right here we're about to get to where diana is and there's this deadly poison don't touch her and steven actually does catch this in his net and by virtue of being in a net this serpent is blinded now up out of the water strikes itself in the net, striking out blindly and kills itself. And I think, oh my gosh, is, you know, Brian, who's great at foreshadowing or bringing a scene in after the sheds light on the scene before I'm going, oh no, <laughs> where, where are we going here? That's- we get this juxtaposition of Stephen's thoughts about Diana with a poisonous snake. Right. Maybe not a million miles away from the juxtaposition in Master and Commander of um, Jack's attraction for Molly Hart, juxtaposed with the description of a female praying mantis eating the head off her mate. <laughs> exactly what came to mind. <laughs> exactly what came to mind. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And I'm, again, I'm sure the juxtapositions are no accident. And I don't think that it means that o- O'Brien has a has a downer on, on females, far from it. Mm-hmm. But uh, he's he's pointing out that there's a, there's a dark and a potentially poisonous side to, to people and their relationships. And he's using this, I think, in a text to warn Stephen and warn us that this is 
this is an aspect of the relationship that Stephen's going to have to navigate. Well, and and also this idea that you know, taken out of the you know this this beautiful sea serpent, taken out of her element, caught into a net, you know, uh, strikes herself dead and starts to lose her color before Stephen can get her into the jar of spirits. It's that you know also O'Brien's feel for the position that so many women were in at this time and how, and Diana, I think a great example of that, of all the contortions that she has to go through to try to be a real person alive in her own way at this time. So uh, all that's set against this incredible backdrop that you were describing of Bombay, which, you know, we're going to see perhaps what some people I think have said is some of the most colorful, most descriptive most engaging um, emotionally as well as in terms of, of what you can envision writing in a chapter in the canon coming up yeah. for us next. And I, I wonder if we can just close with these lines that, that Stephen writes in his journal. I had expected wonders from Bombay, but my heated expectations founded upon the Arabian Nights, a glimpse of the Moorish towns in Africa and books of travel were poor, thin, insubstantial things compared with the reality. There is here a striving, avid, unworldly civilization, of course, these huge eager markets, this incessant buying and selling, but I had no conception of the ubiquitous sense of the holy, no notion of how another world can permeate the secular. Filth, stench, disease, gross superstition, extreme poverty, promiscuous universal defecation do not affect it, nor do they affect my sense of the humanity with which I am surrounded. What an agreeable city it is where a man can walk naked in the heat if it pleases him. I love so, it. So, Stephen's walk, walking naked in the heat. <laughs> and I think we're invited to we're invited to speculate on what what's good about walking naked in the heat and how the fire might burn you walking naked in the heat. Nice. Nice. It, one of the things that that saddened me a little bit about that chapter was you had Stephen there and this passage just so sums it up about how he is just alive and loving it and then we have that scene where their eyes meet and you go uh oh well say goodbye to that yeah. right now Stephen and jack and the crew of the surprise are ashore in bombay surprise herself is being refitted in bombay after all that she suffered in the southern ocean and maybe jack and Stephen are in for a bit of a refit as well how is Stephen going to fare encountering diana how are the governor and his staff to fair now that they're safe on shore and maybe can pull rank a little in society we've got a lot to talk about and a lot about bombay i think to learn when we get together next time so mike in bombay for a while what do you say to a little bit more patrick o'brien ah with all my heart